Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the need for specialized housing for frontline medical professionals fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. Here to cover that are Dr. Preeti Milani of the University of Michigan, Dr. Josh Barokas with Boston Medical Center, and IDSA board member Dr. John Lynch of the University of Washington. All are infectious diseases specialists. Thank you all for being here. Dr. Milani, I'd like to start with you today. Can you describe for me what it's like for healthcare workers on the front lines in terms of their concerns around protecting themselves and their family from becoming infected? COVID is really unique in terms of the sense of fear that affects all of us and no one more so than healthcare workers. There's a certain fear and unknown that is unique. Uh, We worry about our patients and the ability to take good care of them. We certainly worry about ourselves. We worry about getting sick, about becoming exhausted emotionally, physically. We worry that our colleagues might get sick. But more than anything, we worry about our families and whether we might bring COVID home. Uh, Some of the unknown aspects around COVID add to these fears. And although we're learning a lot every day early on, there was really very little known about something that has fundamentally changed our entire world. And some of this information's been helpful. For example, learning that uh, proper personal protective equipment probably helps decrease the risk of transmission uh, substantially, but we're also learning about asymptomatic infection and how that might be transmitted. So that leaves frontline healthcare workers really in a difficult position when it comes to interacting with patients and interacting with their families. And that anxiety, and fear is, is something that makes all of this even more difficult. Thank you, Dr. Milani. Dr. Barocas, have you seen instances of temporary housing for healthcare workers on the front lines of COVID-19? And if so, what did that housing look like? There have been several options that have been uh, in the works across the country at this point for healthcare workers. Uh, a number of hotels, both chains and independent hotels, have been offering free or reduced price occupancy for frontline healthcare workers. Uh, Many hospital systems have uh, accommodated those costs or or, uh, comped those costs as well. Some of the hotels, uh, some of the programs are helping secure food and Wi-Fi and transportation. Um, This is in some of the hardest hardest hit areas in the country. Uh, but also in other places that we don't necessarily hear about all that often in the news. So, for example, um, uh, another way that this has manifested is by college and college dormitories opening up uh, for healthcare workers. Uh, this has happened in small and large towns. For instance, uh, Jackson College, I know in Michigan, has opened up its dorms. The un- the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison, where I uh, was lucky enough to do my residency, has opened up a residence hall for its healthcare workers. Tufts here in Boston um, has been working to prepare for large numbers of healthcare workers. But I I also think that we need to uh, take a moment and look outside what we think of as typical healthcare workers. When we first and foremost 
think about healthcare workers, we think about doctors and nurses and uh, respiratory techs and uh, medical assistants. But I think we also have to expand our thought process now to the fact that uh, shelter workers, uh, homeless shelter workers, domestic violence shelter workers, uh, these are also now frontline healthcare providers. Boston University, I know, made about 75 beds available for employees of one of the uh, local uh, homeless shelters here in the South End. And I know that Northeastern University as well uh, has been opening up uh, some of their dorms for uh, first responders and for shelter workers as well. So uh, a lot of this has, has started to manifest across the country. Um, and a lot of these temporary housing places are essentially repurposed hotels, repurposed dorms uh, that are ready to move in. I appreciate that perspective, Dr. Barocas. Dr. Lynch, moving on to you now, what best practices would you recommend for housing frontline healthcare workers, including configuration, number of people per unit, and other factors? You know, this is a really interesting question. Uh, here in uh, Washington State, I'm in Seattle, We've been uh, working on the epidemic now since really the middle of January uh, when that first patient was diagnosed, at, at least at that time we knew about in the middle of January. And as a result, we've really entered into this, uh, our work in the, around the epidemic in a little more gradual pace, and we're able to get a couple of tools in place that really made our response uh, effective. And so when we think about uh, where housing is necessary and what would that look like. I just want to echo Josh's point that it really reflects what's going on in terms of the speed and size of the outbreak in the location. You know, I think Massachusetts, uh, New York, and, and other places of the country where the epidemic really hit hard and fast and had a very large number of infections, um, you know, the response and need uh, for housing healthcare workers was really, really important as people were getting a handle on it. Um, and in those places where that housing is needed, I think that we really probably need to reflect on the same things that we're looking at for recommendations in the community. And that's basically what we're doing here for healthcare workers is our health workers in my area are still residing in, in their homes. Uh, and the tools I think are really the same regardless of whether you're in a house, in an apartment, an Airbnb or a hotel room. And that's really, you know, unfortunately minimizing direct connections, spacing out as much as possible, uh, using hand hygiene as much as possible. Um, environmental cleaning is, remains critical. And it, I think all these things in ways that we're not used to doing when we're outside of the healthcare facility uh, and where we need to take ownership of things like wiping down high touch surfaces like uh, handles and uh, on doors and remote controls and bathroom surfaces. It, it is a real struggle. And as we talk through it here, and again, going back to my, you know, you know, comments I've made in other places, looking at the future, that being unknown, it's really become, a, I think, a challenge to think about how do we maintain this? How do we maintain that distance? How do we maintain this heightened sense of need for, for cleaning and hand hygiene and, and where we are within, you know, six feet of, of another person masking, whether we're in the healthcare facility or outside. So again, I would sort of just reflect on the things that we're asking all of our community members to do or things we're going to need to ask our 
healthcare workers to do uh, when they're in any of these types of facilities. So much to wrap one's brain around, Dr. Lynch. Thank you very much for that perspective. Dr. Milani, coming back to you, do these best practices that Dr. Lynch just mentioned change depending on COVID-19 test results and whether or not a frontline healthcare worker becomes symptomatic or otherwise. So thanks. That's that's an interesting and, and complicated question, especially as access to testing has thankfully increased and testing itself has, has evolved. And you know, my take on this is that a, I, I do feel a positive test would sort of place a person, a healthcare worker in this case, in a bucket of def- definitive infection based on that result. And we would ask them to do what we would ask patients to do, you know, strict self-isolation at home or elsewhere depending on the configuration of your home and who's at home. And, you know, and obviously that person would not continue to, to come to work um, on, on a frontline basis. Uh, but the issue of symptoms is really evolving. And this is where, as we learn more, it becomes hard to sort out. And a couple of different scenarios come to mind. One is if someone has symptoms compatible with COVID infection and for some reason is unable to get tested or has a negative test. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, we'd probably handle both of these situations similar to uh, definitive positive, and you would keep the individual isolated from others and off of work. And you know, this is something that as access to testing increases, and it's important to know for other reasons uh, if someone has a positive test. Now, the more complicated issue is, is what you touched on, uh, it's this idea of asymptomatic infection, and we're learning more about this issue every day. Um, I have to say, early on, I, I just, maybe I just didn't want to believe it, <laughs> but uh, as we are seeing, there is this complete wide range clinically of what happens with infection. And when it comes to interacting with the general community, uh, social distancing or physical distancing, as, as we like to call it, assumes that everyone's infected. Now, this is harder to do if you're talking about household interactions in your own home or even patient care. And short of a system where you know there's constant testing of asymptomatic healthcare workers, I don't know how to eliminate this uh, residual risk short of not going home. And again, that, that is different for different kinds of jobs, uh, but this is a, a really complicated issue and we've seen, we've seen photos and we've seen like these heartbreaking scenarios where you know people can't being near their loved ones. And, uh, you know, I'm interested to hear what my colleagues have to say, but um, I think this is something that the answer is yes and no. That certainly is heartbreaking, Dr. Milani. Thank you. Dr. Barocas, back to you. What kind of logistics would be required to house frontline healthcare workers in a given area, for example, a city, hospital system, or region? Well, the logistics around uh, housing anyone right now uh, is uh, are very difficult. Uh, they require uh, considerable resources, but I think that uh, on the other hand, the resources pale in comparison to a diminished workforce and a prolonged epidemic. So let's think about for a minute a typical day and night uh, in, in the life of a healthcare worker while at work and not at work. A person wakes up, they require food, and in this day and age, everyone I think requires coffee, um, running water for showering and laundry. They require transportation to and from work, including parking, 
or public transport or taxi services. Um, and since an individual then can't go home, you know, they're, they have to stay in this, uh, this temporary housing environment. There needs to be food available for when they go to work and when they return. They need to have access to uh, Wi-Fi, not only to communicate with family and friends and not feel so isolated, but to truly finish charting for the day. There's, there are so many things that are happening during the day that oftentimes uh, patient charting has to happen at night. So these services, these, these services that I think we take for granted have to be provided on site for temporary housing. Now, um, a few other points. I think it's important that healthcare workers not be responsible for these logistics themselves. Since so many of us are pulled in a thousand directions all at once, and we're trying to focus on patient care as well as whatever protocol we happen to be coming up with on a, on a given day or refining. So I would urge hospitals and, uh, and anyone involved in regional responses uh, to include these services as part of a package, almost a, this is your temporary housing and we've taken care of everything. Now, it's also important, I think, to remember safety. And beyond COVID, which my colleagues have already talked about, that we have to maintain physical distancing, we have to keep in mind uh, asymptomatic spread, we have our own medical problems uh, and uh, as well, we're, we are not all, um, unfortunately, pillars of health. And um, this pandemic is uh, affecting uh, usual medical care, but it's also taking a toll on our own mental health. So I think that any accommodations should be, uh, to the best of our ability, trauma-informed, meaning that whether we uh, cohort people based on self-assigned gender, we recognize that security, while they might be necessary on site, maybe the security role is, is surveillance, not necessarily close contact. Um, we have to have accessibility to crisis and mental health lines for providers. You know, if we're going to put someone in a, a hotel or in a dorm for two weeks without being able to interact with their family going to and from work, that can take a significant emotional and, and mental health toll. Uh, and I also think that we need to make sure that providers have access to uh, medicate their usual medications, that they have help getting them if they need that. I know that this sounds very um, sort of basic, but I think that we can forget that healthcare workers are, are, are people too. And, um, and so any of these places uh, temporary housing for healthcare workers. And again, I include uh, shelter staff and other folks on the front lines who might be in these temporary housing uh, locations um, have access to a broad range of uh, things that meet their basic, basic needs. You raise some important points, Dr. Barogas, that indeed too often get overlooked. Thank you for that perspective. Dr. Lynch, the last question goes to you. How can local businesses like hotels and other temporary housing structures work with healthcare workers and their systems to support them during this time? Yeah, thanks. That's a really great question. And I think it, it actually goes back to uh, Dr. Barakas's point in that we do need to provide sort of wraparound services for healthcare workers who are going to use 
uh, housing of this sort. And it's going to be a real challenge uh, for hospitals to do this, I, I think. Uh, mo most hospitals who are dealing with a COVID-19 outbreak have really markedly decreased their patient volumes and are going to be dealing with uh, some significant financial challenges going forward. And so I think that these partnerships with uh, government and with uh, private entities like hotel chains, uh, like um, you know Airbnb and, and similar uh, business groups are going to be really critical. Um, I've seen some really nice things out there. I think some of which Dr. Brock has mentioned around uh, business partnerships putting out opportunities um, for people to stay. I know some hotel chains and some housing uh, options. But I think we're going to need to push a little bit harder on how to provide all those things that uh, were just mentioned around access to mental health care, food delivery, uh, and, and even movement of people between those facilities and their uh, essential workplaces. So, I mean, I think it's really going to take all of us. Um, I always hesitate to use any type of uh, military analogy for the work we do, but it really feels like uh, the need for a wartime footing where everyone, and it includes all businesses, really all organizations with the United States are really being called upon to uh, partner uh, in order to protect essential workers. And that's every essential worker. Uh, healthcare workers are definitely included as part of that going forward. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any last words. You know, one thing I just wanted to touch on as, as we we're talking about this is some of the unique challenges healthcare workers uh, are, are dealing with right now who have young children at home. Uh, obviously the schools are out right now and um, classes continue in some ma matter, but I was talking to one of my colleagues who has young kids the other day and he mentioned that he's sort of quarantining himself in his house and he noted that if he gets sick and his, his spouse gets sick, then there'll be no one to take care of the kids. Um, and you know, that, that's something that maybe we're not always thinking about is it's not just uh, that we could become very, very ill and have a poor outcome, but there's just this very practical aspect of even if you are ill for, you know, with a relatively mild illness, uh, that the childcare piece has become really complicated and you can take people out of their homes and, and house them in, in ways that are convenient and, uh, and, and, and hopefully comfortable for folks for a short period of time, but life at home continues. And even in the best of circumstances, these are challenging things to manage like that work-life balance, but it, it is um, escalated to, a, to another level. And so I think keeping those issues in mind also are, is, is important. It certainly has escalated. Thank you, Dr. Milani. Dr. Barocas. Yeah, I just want to touch on uh, very briefly one of the things that Dr. Lynch brought up. And uh, I, I very much appreciate the term essential, essential workers. And I think that we're privileged as healthcare workers to have this platform, uh, to have a podcast where we can dedicate time to talk about what temporary housing would look like for us. And um, I want to take just a quick minute to, I think, advocate for uh, the expansion of these services uh, and this, these temporary housing services and wraparound services for the rest of the essential workforce uh, that's, that's out there truly also on the front lines. And this goes beyond people who are um, working 
uh, in shelters, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this, this goes to uh, construction workers who are helping refurbish uh, hospitals. Um, this goes to grocery store workers. I wanna make sure that there's a platform for uh, the, the rest of the workers out there that don't necessarily get the same platform that we do. And I think that, um, that the same services should be applied uh, across these industries so that we're not, we're not widening any disparate, we're trying not to widen any disparity gaps. And we're recognizing that without some of these other essential workers who are sacrificing as much as I am, uh, that, that they are protected as well. Dr. Lynch, the last word goes to you. Dr. Milani and, and Dr. Barakas's points are incredibly important and stand alone, but uh, I would say the other things I would just add to that, going back to Dr. Milani's point, is there's a lot of healthcare worker, healthcare worker partners, partnerships out there, partners living at home, a lot of you know doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists who either in relationships uh, and share uh, responsibilities for children and uh, or in in similar scenarios, and you know housing away uh, is not possible, and so this goes. I think connects to uh, Josh's point around essential workers is that this is really going to take a community approach where, you know, businesses and hospitals and government is all working together to provide uh, support for, for really all these essential workers uh, and those who can be housed in a separate facility, but those who can't and have to remain at home. And what does that look like? Uh, and not rec and recognizing that if you are at home, you're still going to need help with some of those, uh, uh, wraparound services potentially, particularly I think the things around um, childcare, around um, potentially food delivery, but also really importantly uh, is the mental health part of this going forward. The last thing I'll just say is that I think we're going to be facing some additional challenges as uh, different parts of the country relax some of the physical distancing measures that have been in place in the population gradually. Um, and that's where we're seeing our public health colleagues really starting to engage in the uh, contact tracing work. Uh, and we have yet to see how that's going to play out for health workers. We have to remember that contact tracing is really when you find and identify someone with an infection and you identify those contacts. Those contacts, as long as they're asymptomatic, will, will remain basically isolated uh, for 14 days. Uh, and we have to recognize that this could potentially be applied differently for essential workers, including healthcare workers. Uh, and we yet, have yet to sort of figure out how that's going to work for this group of people who need to continue to come back to work. Thank you, Dr. Lynch, and all of you for bringing to light such an important topic. At this time, we would like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Preeti Milani, John Lynch, and John Barokas. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, head to IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on the rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.